Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We are still in our study of Genesis. We're about the halfway point now. And we'll be studying in Genesis 27 and 28 if you want to turn there ahead of time. And per our usual, we'll take just a few minutes to review the last two chapters, 25 and 26, as we kind of catch up and we'll see. See how far we get into this. But chapter 25 opens with Abraham's death uh, at the age of 175 years. And there it's recorded that he died at a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life. And that really is, as we mentioned last week, where I think we all would desire to be satisfied, content with life. I mean, he had many lapses in judgment, as we have, at times ran kind of headlong into sin, Um, and at the end of his life, he had really learned to trust the Lord, to live for the glory of God, and he found in that contentment. And then we asked, are we Are we experiencing that now? Because we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to say, ah, I have discovered what it means to be content with what God has given me, whether that be hardship and difficulty or whether that be great joys and ease of life. In every area of our lives, are we saying, Lord, I'm learning to be content with what you've given me? In contrast, the life of his son Ishmael is described as one who settled in defiance of all his relatives. Not only his relatives, but ultimately in defiance of God. However, despite his rejection of the Lord, Ishmael still received grace and mercy from God. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. Always. He never fails to keep the words which he has spoken whether that be from millennia ago to now, he is still trustworthy to keep his word. As he said um, in Genesis 16, 10, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that you will be too many to count. Or in Genesis 21, 18, again, this is speaking of Ishmael, I will make a great nation of him. So God proves himself to be faithful even to the ungodly, whether that's in in blessing them out of his goodness and kindness or even in his judgment. As chapter 25 closes, we read of the birth of Esau and Jacob and the division and strife of a family that is leaning upon their own wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. And we see there Esau takes no delight in his birthright and in the blessings of being the firstborn. Um, He doesn't see that relationship with with God, something to be treasured or valued. 
It's not the most important thing to him. And so he sells it for a bowl of soup. Uh, the temporary satisfaction in his stomach. And we ask the question, what is most important to us? And are, are we willing to give the most valuable thing away for just temporary satisfaction or pleasure? Now, chapter 26 is the continuation of the history of Isaac's family, and, and sadly, a, a dysfunctional one at that. I think all of us can find some similarities in this if we look around. He, Isaac repeats the sin of his father Abraham, and with it, really, the due penalty. And for many years, his life is marked by repeated contention and opposition between himself and the people of Gerar because of his sin towards Abimelech, the king of Gerar, just as his father had done. So Isaac would reap what he had sown. And what are we sowing? Where, what are we sowing into our lives or into the lives of others? But despite his failure to trust the Lord, again, the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness to his promise, and he blessed Isaac with, with tremendous power and great wealth as he's still in the vicinity after he commits this horrible sin. God blesses him, and Isaac begins to return to the places and memories of his father. He would really diligently seek out those wells and name them according to the names that his father had given him, remembering those things that his father had taught him. And his diligence to seek the Lord brought peace not only in his life, but peace between him and the people of the land. As Abimelech would come and say, Man, you're too powerful for us, make a treaty with us. And again, it ought to remind us, are we seeking with diligence those things and remembering the faithfulness of God so that we can find peace, not just inwardly, but outwardly. And this brings us to chapter 27 and 28. In, in these chapters, we will learn more of the weakness and failures um, of humanity. I mean, this isn't just um, Isaac and Rebecca, Esau and Jacob. Uh, this is you and I. We, we're just, we're kind of looking in the mirror at times of our own weaknesses and failures. This piece of history played out in their lives. It serves as an example of what it means to live a carnal or worldly life, uh, one characterized by trusting in just mere human wisdom or emotions rather than in the wisdom and through the Spirit of God. And this is, I was telling Pastor Doug before uh, we started this evening, it was, I found it really interesting that there's some great parallels between what we see here and what has been taught in 1 Corinthians the last couple of Sundays um, regarding carnal wisdom versus spiritual wisdom. So if you read with me, Genesis chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to her, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now again, as I mentioned, Ryan's study in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 
uh, which was a, con- a continuation of Paul's exhortation and rebuke to the people, the church there at Corinth, Paul's great sorrow was to hear the, of the contention and division that was taking place uh, within the church because of their carnal thinking. They had traded the truth and the grace of God for the lie of human wisdom. Isaac, the, the child of promise, the son who, who willingly submitted himself or, or to, to being offered as a sacrifice at the command of God, the young man who sought the Lord as we see him there as he's meditating upon the Lord uh, there in the evening as Rebecca, his soon-to-be wife, is arriving, this man seems to have lost his way. He, he's, he's not looking to the Lord anymore. Here in our opening verses, we see Isaac's attempt to subvert the Lord's plan, which was mentioned in Genesis 25, 23. The Lord said to her, speaking to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Really, this promise was given now to the younger child. How is it that Isaac who seems to, up to this point, seems to have learned to trust the Lord, Lord, is actively standing against God now. I mean, I think maybe think as a parent, perhaps it's he's wanting to avoid the conflict or not wanting to disappoint his eldest son. Uh, perhaps it's motivated, even as we know from the, the Genesis 25, 28, that he had a greater love for Esau than he had for Jacob. Regardless of the motive, Isaac knows the truth, and yet he sets a plan in motion, one that is based upon his emotions and then his appetites. His flesh, his carnal nature is now the source of his decision-making process rather than the truth of what God has revealed not only to him but to his family. Isaac is, in essence, he's acting now as the enemy of God. Like Paul, I, I, I liken it somewhat to the, what Paul writes in, in Philippians 3, 19, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. He, Isaac seems to be dabbling with this. But, but as a believer and a follower... And we'll see that Isaac is not the only one walking in this, walking in this foolish worldly wisdom. Verse 5, Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to, her son, to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son, and I love the way they're playing it, says, it's his son and her son, right? I mean, I hope we're not missing that. There is such a clear divide here. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves." Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. 
And just pure and simple, this is favoritism, partiality in its grossest form. It's, it's a contradiction to the character and the nature of God, the God that they serve. Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, they further highlight the fact that God is just and righteous and there is no partiality when it comes to the truth. He dispenses it equally and faithfully. According to James chapter 2, favoritism is an evil judge who perverts justice leading to hostility and rivalry. Furthermore, to show partiality violates the Lord's commands to love one another. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are supposed to be encouraging our children in the love of Christ, in the love of God. And what do we see here? We have two parents, in essence, that are pitting their children against each other. One sure way to exasperate or frustrate our children is to play favorites. What we teach our children when we do this is one is better than the other, more valuable, more loved. These are messages, these are messages that crush the spirit and plant seeds of rebellion. As believer, believers, whether we are parents, um, grandparents, teachers, a coach, a spiritual leader in the church, we have the obligation, the command of the Lord to pour his love and grace and mercy and truth upon others in the same measure in which we've received it. Personality, appearance, strength, intelligence, perhaps a shared love or a shared hobby, not even a greater obedience on one part or another should have any bearing on the measure of love that we extend. Yet these are the very things that Isaac and Rebekah set as standards for their love toward their sons. How are we doing? How, how am I doing as I think about my role, not, not just in my, my children's lives, but in the, the children of this church body, in the community? Do we have our favorites, ones that we show and give partial treatment to? And, and, and then really what we are doing is we are sowing a seed of rebellion. Both Isaac and Rebekah knew the prophecy from the Lord concerning the future of the two boys, but their lack of submission to the Lord leads to this worldly carnal example and it's an example that's now going to be mimicked by these two boys. Jacob most likely knew the prophecy, yet he wanted to ensure it was fulfilled, and he sets a trap for his brother, going back to earlier chapters, with a tasty bowl of stew. The birth, the, the, this blessing already belonged to him, the promise already belonged to him. He didn't have to strive for it. He didn't have to connive or manipulate. It belonged to him. But he was worried about losing it. Uh, 
Esau also likely knew the prophecy, and his rebellious heart was encouraged. And rather than retain it, he surrendered it for a full stomach. Years later now, he knows the blessing and the birthright. They're not his. But he continues to act in accordance with his firmly established human nature. And as his father's favorite son, he agrees to this rebellious plan. Verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, is my, my brother, is a hairy man. That one always catches me. <laughs> and I'm a smooth man. Again, it just makes me chuckle just thinking about the two descriptors. Hairy and smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me then, and I will be discovered as a deceiver in his sight, and I'll bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. Jacob is not better than his brother. Let's just be really clear as we, as we think about it. He was a master manipulator and a deceiver himself. His actions proved that he was not concerned about right or wrong in the circumstance. Rather, he was concerned with being caught. It, it was, he wasn't concerned about, about actually being a deceiver, only being perceived as one. Are we more concerned with how people perceive our actions than the message they communicate? What motivates these four people? It's been said before that the four primary motivators in ungodly thinking is pride, power, position, and possessions. Seems to be that that's what's happening here. Isaac took pride in Esau, the man's man. Esau shared in his father's pride, and both of them just fell in love with the outdoors, as it were, with a good hunt and a good meal at the end. And both of them were seeking to establish a position so that Esau would receive the possessions and exercise the power that, according to God, belonged to Jacob. Rebecca's, her own pride in Jacob motivated her to manipulate her son and her husband to lie. God had promised the position, the power and possessions to Jacob. As I mentioned before, there wasn't a need for them to manufacture this. But isn't this how we often ourselves, myself included, isn't this how we operate? I think back, I was briefly sharing with Martin a little bit of my history here at Calvary Chapel when I first came here. And uh, I, was, I was working full-time. I was going to school full-time and had started youth ministry here. Uh, had a lot of ambition. And I, and I can easily say most of it was not godly. It was about arriving at what I saw as success the title, to be a youth pastor, that position. And it wasn't 
that God didn't have that for me. I think I'm standing here before you and, and realizing that it was the very thing God wanted for me, but not in the way that I wanted to have. I wanted to have it in my time, on my terms, in the ways that I thought it would benefit me the most. This is what's happening here. Four people trying to manipulate the creator of the universe. Are we as believers, are we encouraging sinful behavior? Not only in children, but just in each other. And sending a conflicting message. One that says, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. When I think of just simple things, when I first came to Christ, my choice of music, my choice of movies, I was all concerned about how they might reflect on what my children would think about God. One of the central things Samantha and I sought to teach our children was the importance of, of being truthful. She used to tell them, if you can lie, you can commit any sin. And I'm praying that you will get caught every time. You know, which is just a terrifying thought as a child. You're like, wow, mom, thanks. But, but really a kindness, isn't it? That we would rather our children get caught and learn than to be deceived and think that they've got away with sin. Perhaps you've heard or seen something like this. You go to a movie um, or to a theme park, and there's a family ahead of you in line, and before they get to the ticket booth, the, the parents lean down to the kind of this small child and says, you know, you're small for your age. When you get up to the front of the line, um, just tell them you're 11, not 12, and we can save a bunch of money. So just tell them you're 11. I mean, I'll admit, I've been tempted. <laughs> but what lesson is being taught when we teach our kids it's okay to lie? Now, we may not be thinking it that way, but that's what we do. It says God does not see, God does not care. A lie says there are no consequences. And what else does it do? It promotes a lack of trust. For us as parents, what message are we sending to our kids when we, when we oh, it's just a, a little fudge here? How can they trust us to tell the truth? So favoritism has led to pride and rebellion, manipulation and lying. And now all manner of sin is not only possible, but likely. Verse 14. So he went and got up, got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were there in the house and put them on Jacob, her son, younger son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck she also gave the savory food and bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father. 
And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Get up, please sit and eat my game. Eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have done it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. These are some of the most dangerous words a human being could utter. In 1 Kings chapter 22, if you were to turn there, we would learn that lying about God is never a good idea. In the history of the divided kingdoms now, you have Israel and you have Judah. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, uh, Ahab, the, the king of the, the ten northern tribes, and Jehoshaphat of, the, of Judah, they meet to discuss this war against Syria, and Ahab has 400 prophets, all of which tell the two kings, God is for them. Go out into the battle. It's going to be a success. It'll be great. You'll defeat the Syrians. And Jehoshaphat, being sensitive to the Spirit of God, he's like, is there not a prophet of the Lord? <laughs> right? I mean, he knows something's not right. Ahab's response kills me. He says, yeah, there is. There's this one pesky prophet, Micaiah, but he never says anything good to me or about me. But they summon him. And Micaiah, he comes and he proceeds to mock the 400 prophets, the supposed prophets of the Lord. And afterwards, he gives the actual word of God. He says, you will not be successful. King Ahab will be killed in the, and the army will be defeated and dispersed. And as Paul Harvey says, you know the rest of the story. You see, because God knows... He sees, he cares, and a lie will always reap what it has sown. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because the hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me. And I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate and he also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. When he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. He, in essence, speaks the blessing that God gave to Abraham that God then gives to Isaac. Here's the interesting part. What was he trusting in to get it right? It was all just his own natural ability. 
his flesh, his sense of smell, his sense of touch, his sense of hearing. He realizes there's something wrong, but everything else betrays him. You know what's interesting? Having grown up as a hunter, he can't tell the difference at this time between venison, wild game, and a domesticated goat. Worldly wisdom will always disappoint us. Though Isaac sought to fool God, he is ultimately proven to be the fool. His worldly wisdom and desires have been thwarted. And despite the best laid plans and the most elaborate deceptions, God promises, God's promises did not fail. In fact, he cannot be fooled in thought, in word, nor in deed. Jacob receives the promise, the promise and the sweet blessings of God, not because of his sin, uh, but, but, but because of his sin, it comes mixed with bitterness, and we'll see that as we continue forward. He receives what was already his, but now it's tainted. Verse 30, now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I may eat, ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. It makes you wonder, what was Isaac's tone in this moment? I mean, it says that he trembled violently. Was it anger or was it fear? I, I tend to think it was a mixture of both, but heavy on the fear. Fear, for he knew that God had fleshed out his deceitful plan. That he had made his deceit public. As it's been said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We often are the ones that get caught. It's better to honor the Lord at the beginning than to be humbled by him at the end. Amen? Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, he is not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? What we see here is what I experienced for like eight years after that rebellion here. It's, God, it's worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. E Esau is 
not sorry that he, he disappointed God, that he's been disobedient to his parents and broken their heart by marrying into the Canaanite culture. No, he's not even sorry that he treated his birthright as something simple and common. No, he is sorry because he's going to lose everything that the world says is important, that he thinks is important. The power, the positions, and the possessions. The heart of the, of the worldly man is revealed for what it is, is. He takes no responsibility for his foolish decision to sell the birthright. He says, Jacob took it from me. He takes no responsibility for his own part in the manipulation with his father to subvert God's plan. His pride has blinded him to the truth and he stands now as a naked man full of shame and all that remains besides that is just anger. Godly sorrow should have provoked humility and repentance. But since Esau's sorrow is worldly, it produces the only fruit that it can. And this is the danger for you and I. When we discover that our plans that we have laid that are contrary to God's purposes. We have two choices. Shame followed by anger or humility followed by repentance. And if there's anything that we can learn from Esau, it's the latter. It's the latter that not only pleases the heart of God but provokes blessing from God. Verse 37, but Isaac replied to Esau, behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives I have given to him as servants and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, behold, Away from the fertility of the earth shall your, be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By the sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And this is where lies lead. Deception and lies, no matter the reason or justification, will not produce the will and work of God. It can only bear fruit consistent with the bad tree that bore it. Esau teaches me how much I can hold on to things that don't belong to me, that God doesn't have for me. And how he wants me to let them go, trust him, follow him. Uh, 
I still learn some of those same lessons from Jacob. The promises of God are sure and faithful. I don't have to strive to earn them or to keep them from someone else, thinking that I will miss them. No, God says, I have given these blessings to you, to us. Rejoice. Rejoice in that. Encourage one another. Verse 42, now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Haran, my brother Laban. And I'm wondering to myself, she said, listen to my voice and obey me. How did that work out? (laughs) In for a penny, in for a pound. Jacob's like, I've gone this far. I can't go back. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. What you did to him. (laughs) Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? As I said before, Jacob receives the promise and the sweet blessings of God, but the fruit now, because of his mother's deception, they're mixed with this bitterness. Attempting to salvage what she's wrecked, Rebecca sends her Jacob away under the guise of spirituality. She thinks it will only be a short time, that it'll be just a, a, a few days. But that's because, you see, her vision, her vision has been clouded by worldly thinking. The reality is the two would never see each other again. The fruit that they harvested is not what they thought they were planting. Chapter 28 now, verse 1, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessings of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Now here... It seems now, after having been caught, having been exposed, Isaac comes to his senses. And he affirms the covenant of God through Abraham. He affirms that it belongs to Jacob. And he speaks it out clearly. But the damage has been done. 
the division in their house. Verse 6, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aram to take to himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahathaleb, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. So Isaac's rebellion against the Lord and attempted deception sends the wrong message to Esau. But now he sees his brother and Esau attempts to really appease his father. He's like, I'm going to win his graces back and that maybe by some chance I might get the blessing that I so desperately long for. And he marries into the family of Ishmael. But how it, it only serves to, again, reveal that he's missed the whole point. It's not about his outward actions or attempts at obedience. It's the things that are seen by others that will make him right. Rather, it has always been the attitude of his heart. That has always been God's great concern, even as we heard last Sunday. God is concerned with the attitude of our heart. Worldly thinking says, if I do the right things, I will be right with God. However, from the beginning, God has said humility is the heart of right things. Again, I, I, I can so appreciate what, what I'm seeing in, in Esau's life because I have done that. I've attempted to make the outside look right while inwardly there's bitterness and anger. So it's not the end for this family, and not only they are divided in heart, but now they'll be divided physically, and Jacob is sent off. Verse 10, then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I really appreciate just that piece right there. That he is assuring Jacob, yeah, your dad's made some real mistakes, but I love him. I'm, I'm going to fix those mistakes. I'm going to pay for those mistakes. He is still mine. the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You and I 
We're blessed because of him. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And again, we've, we're going to repeat this more as we go through the book of Genesis. This is the story of man's inability to live up to God's standard and God's faithfulness and grace in spite of it in spite of worldly thinking and deception and lies, God will keep His promise. God cannot deny Himself. He, he remains the one constant and faithful anchor in life. Is that true for you and I? His grace is again poured out upon an undeserving human being. In essence, God tells Jacob, you sought it through deception. However, it was never yours to take. It was only mine to give. I love you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, verse 16, and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob has this encounter, perhaps for the first time of his own, his own faith, his own belief now. I know what my father has told me. I know what my mother has told me. I know the craziness that I've been a part of, but this I know for certain for myself. This is where each of us have to arrive as, as we have seen on Sunday mornings when we dedicate children here, those children must arrive at a day in which they embrace God for themselves. And it seems here this begins a change. This is the seeds of change in, in Jacob's life. And he says, he was afraid and said, verse 17, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven so Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. He's consecrating it, setting this place apart and he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, and then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so Jacob discovers the goodness and of grace of God for himself. He learns that he has access to God, but that God is the only door. He reveals to Jacob what he reveals to us through Jesus. The almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, he alone, Jesus alone is our access to the Father, to heaven. Jesus is the ladder, he's the path, he's the gate to the Father. And he assures Isaac. And Isaac repeats this in a vow. Philippians 1.6, 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. As with Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob, despite our messes and our sin as believers, as followers of Jesus, he promises to be with us presently, our present circumstances, and to be with us always. As he mentions in Hebrews 13.5 and John 14.3, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. But there's this pesky piece of our life. I, and I think you're probably like me that we've, we daily, this is why Jesus said we must daily pick up our cross, bury this worldly thinking, nail it down. As one writer said, to mortify the flesh. We need to remember the goodness of God. I need to remember the goodness of God. And that that he has given me every blessing, that he's given us every blessing and more than we can possibly understand. And we don't have to take it by force nor by manipulation because it was only God's to give. And he gives it generously and faithfully to those who are called by his name. And, and really, I pray that we would have the heart and the mind of the Lord that, that his spirit would be our strength and, and our guide, my guide when I'm feeling lost, our source of wisdom. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5, that we would be imitators of God in Christ as we daily surrender our worldly desires, our carnal nature, and by God's grace, not allowing partiality, favoritism, impurity, greed to be named among us. For us as the, as the body of Christ to be characterized by these things, rather to be characterized, as Jesus said, as one, ones who have been with the Savior. Amen? That we would choose to receive the gift He freely offers believing that he will accomplish it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.